1: Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for December 16th, 2011. This week, episode 229 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Back with me in the studio this week is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick with you. Joe. Always a pleasure, Cliff. At the controls is our new engineer, Valerie Bender. Hi, good to be here again. Hi, Val. things are up and running smoothly. Thank you. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question, an interview with Greg Weatherman of AeroBiological Solutions and AeroSolve. We'll have a little halftime break and then we'll come back to our interview, finish with the roundup. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Net Claims now providing insurance billing for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at
0: netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com.
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at Johndon.com,
0: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfax.com and CMMOnline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
1: Okay, of course, you can download previous shows from by going to the iaqradio.com website. Follow the link that says go to the show. You can listen live by following the link from your show invitation and signing in through the shoot program. We also have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits available. Just send me an email at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And I'll get you out some quizzes for the show, and we'll take care of uh, your continuing education needs. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe.
0: <laughs> win a cool prize by out fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to CZlotnick at CS.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, text in your answer. Sorry, there was no correct answer to last week's trivia question. <laughs> The IAQ Radio trivia question for Friday, December 16th, 2011, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Last week's trivia question was real important, Joe, so we're going to recycle it. Name the first American physician to devote her life to the practice of industrial hygiene. Back to you, Joe. All
1: right. Thank you, Cliff. Greg Weatherman is a council-certified microbial consultant, a member of the Indoor Air Quality Association. He's been working with mold since 1997 with Aerobiological Solutions, Inc. He has operated as a remediation contractor or consultant at different times, most of the customer base he deals with are people with health complaints and extreme sensitivities. He's done some in house research to find better remediation methods or fine tune best methods. He is listed as a peer reviewer and contributor for industry books written by Bob Brandis. Dr. Bob Brandis has been on the show here several times, one of those being post remediation testing and verification of mold and bacteria. He has been accepted as a technical contributor to the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization Restoration Industry Association 6000 Committee for Standards for Fire Damage Restoration, and he has taken a new position with AeroSolver as the Chief Technical Officer. AeroSolver is the manufacturer of a product to clean particles from the air with a fogging method for combustion byproducts, asbestos, microbial fragments, and other inhalation hazards or irritants. We've got some intro music for Greg Weatherman. Okay, let's get the weatherman unmuted here, please. Hello. Oh, okay, Greg, do we have you on the line? Hello, Greg. Good morning. All right, great. Good to have Good you. Thanks, thanks for joining us, Greg. Let's go a little, uh, first, uh, a little background for listeners. In in your bio, we, we mentioned that you've done both remediation and consulting. I don't think both at the same time, though. Is that accurate?
2: Uh, I have tried to avoid it, uh, but in the past, there were times when I did it with extreme sensitivity situations, and I would just really, really try to push people to hiring someone to do the other side of, of the business, and then uh as soon as the uh old American Indoor Air Quality Council came out with their uh, uh code of conduct uh, to avoid that, that's when I started avoiding it years ago. So, okay. Uh, so that that's how I've gone back and forth, and uh, it, it has given me perspectives on both sides of the argument that have been helpful to try to figure out where things go wrong.
0: Greg, it's Cliff. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, do you have formal training, or did you self-teach yourself?
2: Uh, I've... I am mostly self-taught. I, I do go to things. Uh, I, I had a little bit of college. I was a college dropout. I I've gone to uh, <laughs> courses such as Macrone's microscopy uh, courses for mold and pollen. Uh, I took a, a Dr. John Pitt's uh, penicillium species identification workshop. Uh, I don't do that type of lab work. I just like to understand it so I can understand how it impacts what I do. Gotcha, Joe.
1: Well, and I understand you go to a lot of conferences as well. I mean, you've been probably to as many conferences as as many people in the industry, especially where you're located. We didn't mention you're in Arlington, Virginia, and I assume that brings you into contact with a lot of people within government, researchers, et cetera. Uh, yeah, yes, it
2: does. I, I I've been fortunate to... Who have uh, had a professional relationship with uh, Dr. George Mean over at University of Maryland? I, I would I would credit him with uh, a lot of uh, knowledge he gave me, and and uh, he he has done a lot of uh, research with toxin-producing mold at University of Maryland, along with uh, Dr. Bruce Jarvis. So that that makes me a very lucky person, just due to locality uh, alone. And then on the government side, uh, uh, working with. Uh, Working near the research and government facilities, uh, I've been involved with some nanotechnology conferences that I really don't think I would have known about had I not lived in the area and had they not contacted me to come get involved.
0: Greg, working with a lot of people with chemical sensitivities, as you do, um, oftentimes these people have a preconceived mindset in terms of what's hazardous and, and what's not hazardous. And, you know, I think oftentimes they think that if something is naturally derived, it's safer than something that's, uh, synthetic. Um, what do you think on that
2: subject? I, I think you have to be careful with natural versus man-made. Uh, because, uh, an example I always give is, um, uh, uh Terpenes like uh, pine, lemon, or, or orange oil are used for uh, paint strippers and uh, oven cleaners, and they they can cause some respiratory complaints. Uh, there there was a uh, researcher Charles Westclear that that was cited by EPA over a decade ago about that very problem in for indoor air quality, especially for photochemical smog, say around coffee machines. Uh, I, I think more than a few carpet cleaners have probably found out that uh orange oil and carpet cleaning solutions at high heat uh probably causes some severe complaints as well. Uh so you know, it really it comes down to what can the person metabolize versus uh hangs around a little too long and causes problems.
1: Greg, over the Past couple of years, I mean, you've you've been in the remediation end of things. You've done some asbestos remediation. What other types of asbestos or other types of remediation have you done? Just so we get a little better background on your your experience in that world.
2: Uh, I've worked with asbestos, of course. I've uh, I've also done some pesticide decontamination uh, with some oversight by a material scientist that used to work for EPA. Uh, and and just uh, removing uh, particles from the air, you know, as far as uh, respiratory complaint issues overall, um, and, and in general, that, that's those are the areas I've dealt with.
1: Were you in the water damage or fire restoration at all? I'm just curious, trying to make sure I got the whole background.
2: Yeah, well, I, I've done that as far as coming in, trying to point out, you know, how how to. Uh, Remove some problems more so on the consulting
1: side than actually cleaning up the problem. Okay. Uh, I'm just curious with respect to remediation industry guidelines and standards for mold remediation. You, in some of your posts and some of your your previous writings, you seem to be. Uh, Lou, you find them wanting, I guess, would be the best way to put it. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the industry standards out there and what your thoughts are with respect to maybe where they've got it right and where they need to work on it?
2: Okay, well, I'll, I'll go with what I think is right. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, to start with, I, I think uh, uh, avoiding cross-contamination, protecting your workers, and uh, and... Uh, focusing more on cleaning and physical removal methods than uh, killing or uh, killing problems or things of that nature. I, I think that part's correct. <clears throat> what I think is incorrect is I think in the industry, and I've, I've seen this with uh, local contractors and contractors in other states. They are married to negative air pressure, and that may not quite be the standard fault because the S five hundred and twenty does propose the use of positive air pressure. But I never hear anybody say uh, that's an S five hundred and twenty. They tell me that's new, and I, and I can show them, and they they're like, ah, I've never read that before." And, and I think part of the problem is they just go through a few days course where they're where they're Part uh, a very small part of what what goes on to control things, and they don't understand that things like positive air pressure containment have been a uh, basis of clean room engineering for decades. Uh, I also think uh, another problem with uh, with the standards is they, they don't they don't look at small particles; they look at whole mold spores. Uh, and they don't look at different ways to clean the air. They they are just stuck with HEPA filtration, which is interesting, given if you compare asbestos abatement and uh, mold remediation, which one really came from the other? Uh, they they totally ignore the clean room industry, which is very interesting, given the uh, the fact that that everything in manufacturing now is going to some level of a clean room ISO certification. So that, that's that's where a lot of my issues come with that. And uh, uh, standards don't really get into testing. And that's another problem is they, they don't really identify the fact that if you're going to test at this level that's more sensitive, you might need to rethink how you're doing things.
1: Well, let's also go, go back. You mentioned a little bit about your historical perspective on things. I, I want to kind of touch on what some of the most important changes you have seen over time as you've been involved in the industry. You've been out running around getting involved with things since 97, 99 in that area. What have you seen with respect to changes that, that you like and, and what don't you like? Well, I'm not.
2: I'll say most of what I've seen I like because it solves problems that I had observed, and I was just looking for uh, guidance from others on on how to uh, work with this, and maybe other people didn't uh, pay attention to it, but, you know, uh, there's a lot of material out there to draw from, and a lot of times, in fact, Lou Harriman made a statement at a National Institute of Building Science conference once saying that there's so many peer-reviewed papers out there that nobody can keep up with them all. and, and this was a very accurate statement uh, that he had made. And, and apparently he had made this statement years before at an ashray conference. And here it was a decade or two later, and he's repeating the same statement, and the problem still had not gone away. So uh, I, I would say that uh, uh, the, the uh, reliance of uh, biocides and ignoring uh, physical cleaning was obviously a great thing. Uh, back in the 90s, late 90s. Uh, I, I would say that uh, testing with spore traps that, uh, along with culturable um, culture plates was also a great thing. That was really driven by the uh, okra toxin A found in household dust paper. Uh, and then uh, I, I would say PCR technology has been wonderful because. That's really your only way to, to uh, figure out if you're dealing with small fragments of mold. Uh, and, and then uh, uh, along the lines, things like using a Swiffer cloth. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not the only person that does that, but that's a clean room approach. And uh, I think some people have figured out that HEPA vacuuming alone doesn't work and that you need to do things of that nature. And I, I would say I, I like most of what I see. What what I don't like is when people get caught up in groupthink with standards, and they they, uh, they, they say we're only going to do things in one way. Uh, one of the things I love about the ACGIH Bioaerosol Assessment and Control Book is they give you a range of Problems you may encounter, and they give you a range of ways to test it and a range of ways to resolve the problem. Uh, I'm told that next to impossible is standard, but that's a shame. Well, uh, I think it hurts uh, consultants and remediators. You know that that
1: is a tough issue. Let me let me go back first to the 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 fragments issue. The the fact is that um, over time we've had a lot of people on the show. Some felt. Spore fragments during mold remediation weren't a big issue. And more recently, I'd say people have concluded that they are something to be concerned about. Do you think that uh, when people do typical spore trap sampling and find that things appear to be somewhat normal, that uh, yet there are still concerns in the building, do you feel that maybe we're just missing these fragments?
2: Uh, yes, I do. That, that's what I found from having worked with a lot of the Dr. Richie Shoemaker's patients. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times I come in after somebody else has done remediation and there's health complaints, and it's a patient of his or, or some doctor working uh, with Dr. Shoemaker, and, uh, you know, somebody will say, well, four trap samples look great, and you, you can take uh, PTR samples. And I did this years ago with uh, four-hour PCR air samples. And you see just a totally different world. And suddenly you start seeing things that you didn't know were there. Uh, I have a microscope, and I, I can uh, hook it up to a camera coupler and uh, to magnify it even further and hook it up to a TV screen. And this is kind of what I did with foot before I uh, sent samples out to a commercial lab for actual electron microscopy work. And one of the things I did in remediation early on is rather than try to identify uh, and count different types of sports or customers, which would be crazy because you always want that independent, I would generally take air samples and then just look and see how clean the air looked for just overall for particles, just to see how busy the air was. Because I, I've always felt like if, if you can't, Get the particles down. There's an issue, and then I would also use a laser particle counter, and, and uh, take note of you know the numbers in the in the size channels. And so there there is something to it. And then when you look at clean room ISO certification levels for uh, where, where they look at different counts for uh, uh, size channels based on laser particle counts, uh, starting at ISO class A and working back to ISO class 1, which is the highest and hardest to get certification, uh, what you quickly notice is the smaller particles are the most difficult to control in the air, not the larger particles. And so when, when I saw this, I, the question in my mind became, well, uh, if you keep testing for boulders in the sky, wh- why wouldn't everything look good? And so and the reason I went about this is I don't think people are bad remediators, and I don't think consultants are are somehow without knowledge. I just think that sometimes it comes down to perspective, and if your perspective is in one direction, you may not see other things and I think we've all, including myself, been guilty of looking in the wrong direction when we're trying to solve a problem so. That that's
1: where I come from on that issue. No, when when you say perspective, let me ask a, a follow up question on that. You you work a lot with sensitive people, at least now. I, I assume in the past you probably worked with a wider range of people. But I, you, you correct me if I'm wrong. Do you feel that the types of procedures and protocols that you write for sensitive populations are necessary for all populations?
2: Well, you know, there there's a there's a legal side to that question and then there's a uh side side to that question. Uh, the legal side, side of the question is question. And
1: a financial side, yeah. Okay. Go go ahead. I'm well, sorry.
2: there's also that too, but the uh, from my perspective, I'm going to offer the the best remediation plan. Uh And I'm going to try to be as cost effective as possible for what the problem has or what the person has, you know, whatever the problem is. But uh, you you really have to be careful with being seen as diagnosing the uh, uh, customer's problems and trying to act like a doctor. I mean, on one hand, I, I do want to know health complaints. I do want to know if a person has peripheral neuropathy, or are they just sneezing, or is there no health complaints at all? I mean, they, they suggest totally different things. Uh, peripheral neuropathy may suggest toxic reactions. I'm not going to tell them that. They need to go see a doctor to figure out if there's anything to that. Uh, but the, the person with the uh, toxicity issues like Dr. Shoemaker has, you have to do some very extensive remediation, no stone unturned, soft forest items are next to impossible to deal with, and uh, uh, it, it's it, it's not going to be uh, inexpensive, and it's going to be time-consuming. Uh, and, and then you have some other people who are just concerned about mold for property value, uh, and it, it's a little small spot on a basement wall. It's obvious where the source of the water is. It's it's You don't need to go into a big production for that. Uh, they've got better places to spend their money. But you have to be very careful how you differentiate these things. And you have to put the customer in the decision chair.
1: Fair enough. So that
2: you're not diagnosing and you're not... Uh, uh, taking all the liability, because the customer needs to be involved with the decision, and I think that's what gets people in trouble. Cliff, Greg,
0: when the cleaning and remediation chemicals have a role in remediating the environments occupied by chemically sensitive people, and is it practical to, or or can you really remediate an environment without using chemicals?
2: Well, um, first of all, the the use of the word chemical is very broad. I mean, we're always going to need chemicals. Uh, I I just think people need to pay attention to uh, toxicology issues and uh, individual sensitivities. And uh, for instance, 20-team mule borax is typically well-tolerated, most anybody with chemical sensitivity. And if you need to scrub a surface to remove some sort of film, that's a great way to do it. Um, And generally, the person with chemical sensitivity is not going to have an issue with that. There are detergents and stuff out there that create uh, vapors that will irritate them. There are some uh, typically... uh, Detergents used for uh, preparing surfaces for painting that are very, very common. And they produce very strong odors and they work really well. And y- you can get yourself into trouble with that by not paying attention to those types of things. These people have uh, very delicate uh, respiratory and circulatory issues, hormone dysfunction, uh, T cells being overreactive, and things of that nature. and. If a person's never dealt with that and doesn't understand what's going on there, I, I would urge extreme caution about coming in with various chemicals, see what they're used to using. Uh, I run into chemically sensitive people that don't have any problem at all with SDS, which is common to shampoo. See, what, what those, I'm
1: sorry, Greg. What's that What's that acronym stand for?
2: Sodium, dodecyl benzene, sulfonate. So Okay. It is very, very common in shampoo. A lot of times when you smell that shampoo odor, whether it's the shampoo in your hair or carpet shampoo, that's the chemical that you're smelling many times. And it, it does have a certain odor to it. Everybody recognizes it. And some people with chemical sensitivity have no issue with it, and some do. So it you have to get back to the individual, and you need to really look at, VOC issues, especially VOCs that cannot be metabolized quite so quickly. Um, there's there's issues with paints that you need to really watch out for in that area, um, you know, if you're going to seal something. So we're always going to need chemicals. We just need to pay, pay better attention to uh, individual customer sensitivity and uh, how that works with the products we're using.
1: Greg, before we go to halftime, I've got I've got a couple texts here. I want to get to. Hang in there, uh, if you're on the line texting questions, we'll get to those in just a moment. But we're also going to go into more remediation after our halftime break. But before we do, I just have one question I want to follow up with on this particular subject. Do you find any sensitive people that you're unable to help?
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh- I mean, if they're if they're not getting proper medical care, um, they may blame you when, in fact, their body has not had time to readjust. I mean, T cells don't just downregulate overnight. It takes time, even in the cleanest environment. It's just that's just the way nature works. That's the innate immune system, and uh, unfortunately, they don't exactly teach that in public school. Um, you uh, you also have patients who don't follow doctors orders. You know, if I I've had a customer who uh, doctor shoemaker would uh, put him on cholestyramine and maybe uh, which is an anti cholesterol drug and and maybe they would have a, an upset stomach from it and then they would try his his Well Call uh, route and maybe they didn't like that so then they decide to try a different cholesterol medication without. Uh, asking him, well, first of all, you're not following doctor's orders, and second of all, you're you're playing the part of doctor for yourself, which is just going to lead to disaster, and it really doesn't matter what I or anyone does for that person if, if they're not going to take care of their bodies. So uh, I, I ran into the same thing with a guy who, who was convinced that he was suffering from pesticide poisoning, even though his house his had mold all over it, he was seeing a neurologist, and the neurologist swore up and down. He needed to do certain testing, and the guy kept arguing about the validity of that testing. And it's like, what do you do in those types of situations? I, I brought in a, a guy who has a long history with indoor air quality and material sciences and pesticides and things of that nature. And, he, you know, he tried to work with a guy the best he could. But at the end of the day, if you're not following doctor's orders, there's nothing we as professionals or contractors can do for that person.
1: I appreciate that, and let me – I was wrong. I have one more follow-up on this, but I want to pose it to you before the break, stop and thank our sponsors, and then let you answer it when we come back. You have been criticized by some in the industry because part of what you will allow on some projects is for some of your clients to help with – at least cleaning some of the contents and, and maybe going a little further than that, but I don't want to put uh, words into your mouth, and also for allowing some clients to take certain types of samples uh, to assist you with determining what the, well, I don't want to even say what why you're doing that. Let's just, after the break, if you wouldn't mind, if you could address those two uh, criticisms and um, you know, kind of you know, get the get things straight with everybody out there that's interested in those answers. So, give us just a moment, Greg. We'll be right back with our second half of our interview with Greg Weatherman, Aerobiological Solutions and Aero Solver. Interesting first half. Look forward to the second. association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com.
0: The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org.
1: And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at
0: wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of
1: course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com.
0: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. and
1: of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine. Your source for cleaning and maintenance news, visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com.
0: Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services.
1: All right, we should be back with Greg Weatherman, Aero Solver and Aero Biological Solutions. Greg, do we have you back on the line?
2: Uh, yes, uh, and, and to uh, answer your question, I, uh, that, that has been a raging argument on LinkedIn, and uh, uh, sometimes I wonder if I should just go crawl under a rock and go back to, to doing what I'm doing. But. <laughs>
1: well, I got to give you credit, Greg. You don't do that. You you continue to correspond with the folks that have been uh, some pretty rough on you, but you know, hey, you, you've opened yourself up to it, so. What's your response um why do you let people take their own samples and help you with some of the cleaning in their their own um, homes
2: uh, okay well let me start on the sample part first of all dr. shoemaker suggests that they take their own sample um, I just sometimes I, I I've seen other people's samples and uh, when they especially when they use the the carpet cassette and maybe they weren't vigorous with it on the carpet surface and maybe the uh, Uh, results didn't look too impressive there was like small levels of things but not very much and so I would go and uh, retake the sample and I would find a lot more material than they found that uh, uh, pretty much pointed the way that that yes there is a problem uh, along with the physical inspection I mean you you, you can't just have a magic bullet test You, you have to do a physical inspection somebody has to uh Sometimes I'll just sit there and interpret tests for people and let somebody else do a, an inspection. But along the way, I just have been refining the testing and uh, to try to take away biases, and uh, it, it's always been said that it's good to, to, uh, to have a walkthrough, do some sampling, and then come back and, and look again to see uh, how that applies. So I'm sort of, in a way, doing that by having test results ahead of time because different organisms may suggest different things. I have brought up different organisms on AIHA's um, discussion board that raise issues. And the ones I've been saying recently are Aspergillus restrictus versus Aspergillus versicolor versus Aspergillus niger. And it does not matter who takes the sample, if they do it the way I, I prefer to do it, which is to take a Swiffer cloth and go around horizontal surfaces or places like computer screens or TV screens subject to uh, uh, electrostatic energy. Because for particles to reach those surfaces, they had to be in the air, and that's what you're really breathing. Uh, or at least it gives you a sense of that. And there's uh, I, a... I don't think air, air sampling is that good. I've done it for years, and uh, Dr. Shoemaker tells me he sees no correlation with results and health effects with air sampling of any kind. And so when I have this information ahead of time, it allows me to do better on-site investigations. Now, as far as the uh, allowing people to do certain parts of remediation, um, if somebody has extreme sensitivities to mold, obviously... And that's between them and the doctor as to whether or not they can engage in that kind of material. I don't make that decision. I leave that up to them. They're paying the bill. They own the property. Now, uh, in a commercial situation or government institutional situation, I would certainly never recommend that. But when it's somebody's private home, they don't have a lot of money to throw at the problem. They're suffering. They're, they're headlong headed to bankruptcy. They've been to several doctors. They're miserable for 10 years or more. You've got to work with these people. You can't just turn your back on them. Uh, They're not going to understand containment building. They're not going to spend $1,000 on the negative air machine and buy the expensive vacuums and uh, things of that nature. Uh, uh, There's just certain things like that they're not going to do. But as far as cleaning... There's no reason why, unless the doctor says otherwise, they can't do that. But they have got to be willing to take the liability for their actions and take it away from whoever's doing, helping them with remediation work. And I think there's a market out there for restoration contractors and asbestos abatement contractors because uh, insurance only goes so far and they're going to go a lot less further if the uh, stock market keeps doing what it's been doing.
1: Greg, let me, I got a couple texts I have to get to. One is, that, and I'm not sure this text came in when you answered an earlier question, and it has to do with, I think it had to do with uh, seeing professional sample results and not being as good as the sample results that either you took or, or the homeowner took. And, and the question was, was that a result of vacuuming for a longer period of time or a larger sample area? Maybe you could comment on the sample area at the same time.
2: Well, sometimes it's a sample area. Um, you know, if you're sampling an area that's a high-traffic area, you have to take a step back and ask how much of this test result is due to foot traffic. Because just because something was on the foot and went into the carpet doesn't mean you were inhaling it. That, that's why I prefer the Swiffer cloth up higher. The, the other part is uh, maybe maybe my ability to get vigorous with the carpet is a little better than someone uh, suffering horrible chronic fatigue issues. And they're just trying to do the best they can. And uh, uh, they, they indicate that, uh, that that their blood bar marker testing says they have problems, even though the ERMI test came back negative, even though they, they can smell mold. And that's kind of a given that, well, something's wrong with the test method. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's that's what has led me down that path
0: of going there. Greg, what, what, you know, earlier you, you used the term bias and uh, how in your sampling methods you try to remove bias from it. it I mean, I, I could see how a, an occupant taking samples in order to reduce that, you know, could provide a money savings or, or something like that. I could also see where they would have a bias. I mean, they certainly have a dog in the fight. And, um, you know, I could see them either pressing harder, staying longer, uh, you know, trying to do whatever was necessary in order to influence the results so that their dog won the fight. And I don't know that there's any way that you can take that out of the equation. Well,
2: I... I don't think you can take bias, that type of bias out from the consultant side either because what I find with a lot of uh, consultants is, is that they absolutely hate the ERMI test. They they just hate it. And uh, I, I have clients that contact me far away the West Coast, California, Washington. I mean, it's appalling. They can't find anybody to take the sample. Now, they're told by their doctor who either is, Dr. Shoemaker or a doctor working with Dr. Shoemaker, they need this sample. They're following doctor's orders. I don't understand why local consultants can't do what they're asked to do and paid to do. That That's just utterly bizarre to me. Um, if they don't agree with a sample, okay, that's fine. All they're doing is being paid to do what uh, what they were asked for from the doctor okay if if a doctor tells you to run some sort of analysis for a biopsy you don't sit there in a lab and, and, and criticize the doctor for running that biopsy i mean that's just crazy uh so i get thrown into these situations and and i do the best i can with it and everybody has skin in the game um However, these people are very, very ill. They just want to get to the bottom of what is the problem. And, you know, they hear that it worked for someone else, a lot of other people, so they go there. Now, if the industrial hygiene world wants to ignore that, that's their right. But this is a approximately 25% of the population carries these genotypes. And who's to say there's not other problems that we're all ignoring, too? So to remove a bias, I mean, you're always going to have a bias with everything you're looking at. I try to remove the ones that are the most obvious. And uh, sampling where people walk, I don't think it's a good idea.
1: Greg, let me just clarify something. You've had some criticism over this, using the term ERMI, which is Environmental Relative Moldiness Index versus just a PCR sample. And I'm actually a little I think maybe we're getting that a little confused too you know, ERMI is is specific as I understand it to a protocol developed by EPA, well by Dr. Steve Vesper and I think it's through EPA but PCR is just a type of which are you doing? Are you doing ERMI? Are you doing PCR? Or are are we kind of mixing those two words together when maybe we should be a little more careful?
2: Uh, Well let me just Get down to specifics PCR is an analytical method ERMI is a statistical score applied to PCR results from surfaces okay they also take people's vacuum cleaner bags and sample those because that, and that's a long term history of what, what they've been doing when they vacuum their, their home um You know, it comes down to you have a test method and you have a statistical scoring method, and it's that simple.
1: But it sounds like you're using the results. um, You're looking at the results in a little more detail than just the statistical scoring method. You're looking for specific hits as well. Is that accurate?
2: Uh yeah, I'm probably doing that more so.
1: Okay. Okay. Greg, we wanted to move into the Aerosolve uh discussion. I know Cliff had some questions on that, so let's do that because we're running a little low on time. Let's first let's let's tell listeners a little bit about what is Aerosolve, uh, what is the product and how do you can you explain for listeners how it works?
2: Okay. Uh Aerosolver is a mostly water based product with uh surfactants and uh SVOCs are slow evaporating uh, chemicals. Uh, like, for instance, in Aerosol or Pure, it's uh, uh, water, sodium borate, and uh, food grade glycerol. Uh, that That's what we suggest for chemically sensitive populations or people who don't want fragrance. And the other one is just a, a fragrance product with uh, basically a, a, a lavender phenol, sodium phenate uh, at very low dilutions in comparison. Uh, on par with, say, chloroseptic for uh, children age two to three, as far as uh, the actual dilution that you've used it at. Okay. And so basically what we're doing in, in terms of physics, and this is used in pollution control, uh, we're using a process called gradient or shear coagulation, um, and that's where uh, droplets capture particles Now, those droplets could be oil-based or they could be water-based. That's a strict uh, definition given by W.C. Hines in aerosol technology. Uh, And if anybody wants to look his book up, I I would say it's a very enlightening book to read if you're going to keep working with indoor air quality. But the best way to describe it is you have two lanes of traffic. You have a fast lane and a slow lane. Uh, The cars are the water droplets moving at different speeds, like gas streamlines, if you were to measure with an anemometer. Uh, A motorcycle is like the particle you're trying to capture, and this motorcycle is trying to get through traffic by going in between those two lanes or gas streamlines. Uh, Even though uh, you think you're hitting uh, particles head-on, when you're pointing at them, that's not the way it works. What really happens is the particles get in line, and the particles that are caught between those two gas stream lines, like the motorcyclist, uh, gets clipped from behind by the fast lane. This is the basis of how venturi wet scrubbers work the, to control soot uh, uh, emissions. You know, for EPA's Clean Air Act, uh, there's also a pressure drop in there. And what I've been able to do is, is to uh, figure out how to use this method with a slow and sweeping motion to uh, increase the particle capture efficiency with it. And then, uh, now, the problem you have if you fog in the middle of the room is uh, you will capture some particles, but uh, you get into another form of coagulation called kinematic coagulation. And the problem with this method is uh, droplets that are larger or the same size. Once you get into particles that are subject to diffusion because they're so light and buoyant, those particles actually go around the water droplets. They never collide. Uh, right? that, that's why you know, when uh, a fireman's trying to put out a fire, you'll see it spray the you know all these water spray in the air, and smoke is going right through it. It's actually going around the water droplets. Uh, th- these are all uh, uh, physics-related, and kinematic coagulation, there's actually a, uh, a physics equation showing you the size of the particle that goes around the size of the droplet, if anybody really wants to go into that. And, and then you, you have to get into things like the Kelvin-Kohler effect, which has to do with uh, uh, the need to reach uh supersaturation or 100% relative humidity or higher, uh, a lot of times when people have try to use fogging in the past or something of that nature, uh, they weren't paying attention to this. So water molecules leave water droplets and, and water droplets gain water molecules at the same time. So if you're below supersaturation, you're going to evaporate at some point. If you're above supersaturation, the water droplet's going to grow, and then it's going to uh, be affected by gravity and drop. And so what we're trying to do is capture particles so that they, uh, uh, they they drop to the floor rather than stay in the air. And that's why smaller, like especially 10 microns and smaller, mm-hmm or not paying attention to uh, relative humidity on a temporary basis uh, will not work for you. you know, so what we're doing is we're cleaning very fine particles. You're, with bre- this method. you're
1: breaking up a little, Greg, but I know uh, yeah, Cliff has a, a yeah, question. You're, you're,
0: you're, you're breaking up a little bit, but um, you know, I guess the challenge I have with the process is that... Um, and and i looked and i understand how you did your research using water based particles and oil based particles and and so on and so forth uh you know i'm old enough to remember when we didn't have ultra low volume foggers where it was just cold foggers that produced large particle size in the range of maybe 50 to 150 microns and You know, the one thing I can tell you from experience is that when it came to odor removal using cold foggers, using ultra-low-volume foggers, and using thermal foggers, the dramatic difference came with thermal fogging. Prior to that, and prior to that process, no one was willing to guarantee smoke odor removal. And it was very, very common that after restoration smoke odor would linger in these houses and that's no longer a problem. I I think that you know there have been processes that have been developed that work very very effectively on smoke odor and it seems to me that we may be going backwards with with what you're doing rather than going forward because the part you know particularly with thermal fogging of of water-based I'm not sure whether you've ever done any experience or experimentation with that but it's it's pretty effective in terms of yeah
2: i I haven't worked with oil uh based uh, liquid but i i would think that works because it it doesn't have the evaporation problem that water has um but then there's a residue issue and uh that that's kind of uh when you look at that there's there's a uh uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, a, a uh, Joe Math way of looking at evaporation of droplets, uh, you know, in honor of Joe Stebrook. Um, and it's cited in that W.C. Hines book in the coagulation chapter. And if you take uh, water droplets that are between 10 and 40 micrometers in diameter, if you take the square root of that number, that's how many seconds it actually lasts. And 50% relative humidity before it hits total evaporation. And so that, that, that's the problem there with the water-based, uh, materials. And, uh, there's actually somebody who has a, uh, a, uh, industrial scrubber technology that also likes to use 50 micrometer droplets. And he was a climate scientist at either Arizona or Arizona State. And he came up with that droplet size also for industrial uh, waste uh, exhaust systems for the very same reason.
1: Now, Greg, let me just... Go ahead, Cliff. You well,
0: ahead. I, I, think the one, I think the one point is that, you know, going back to, to thermal fogging, I think thermal fogging originally started with solvent-based formulations. And then... There were water-based formulations that you know would be fifty percent water or more than fifty percent water that would still be able. I understand. I believe I understand what you're trying to do. Um, From a practical standpoint, what you're trying to describe people can't see. And the the well, uh, well, uh, let me go on. The, The one thing I can tell you is that when. I was active in doing fire restoration, and I'm not sure whether my old company still does it like that or not, but we would literally have set fires in rooms, plastic fires. You know, we would take students in there. They would not be able to see that there was smoke in the air, but within a couple of seconds, they would look at the the respirator, the person next to them, and they could actually see the collection, and we would take a HEPA vacuum and you know, pull it through a filter so they can visually see it. We would thermally fog that room with a water-based product. And literally within seconds, there would be nothing in the air. And they could dramatically see the difference. And we were able to quickly drop what was in there, down to the ground and they could you know they could see the fog greg is what i'm trying to tell you i mean there were innumerable you know i couldn't even begin to count the innumerable number of droplets that that this equipment was capable of putting in into that room but i mean it literally filled the room up to where you could not see your hand uh you know in front of your face and and it would hang and it would drop those particles down. So, I mean, the, these formulations were dramatically more than water, and I'm just trying to figure well, out.
2: yeah, let, let me just uh, point to something that's known in meteorological sciences. Um, droplets that are 10 micrometers or smaller float in the air like a fog, and so when they do that, that, that means you, they're still there to inhale. I mean, it's, it's, it's a simply a, a function of gravity. Uh, you can see the fog that uh, something like a and g fogger produces or fog master, you just have to reach supersaturation. You have to pay attention to relative humidity. Um, what you do in Arizona is very different than what you do in uh, Miami, Florida. Very different. It's, and you have to pay attention to these things. The, the other thing is when you have larger droplets and you capture particles and you drop them to the floor, if you want to come in and test for uh, VOCs, comparing two different droplet sizes, you will find the smaller droplet creates higher VOC levels because you've increased volatility. Uh, And and then also, um, if you're going with what you sense, with what you smell, maybe the particle is is coated with a fragrance where you can't detect the smoke odor. All you can detect is the fragrance on the particle Uh, A lot of odors really are particles that you inhale in your nose that uh, have strong-smelling molecules riding on the outside of them. Uh, So the way I tested this is I pumped a bunch of uh, soot from burning motor oil into a plastic containment outdoors, and I pumped it in until the point that it was so black you could actually see the black soot smoke in the air. Now, this was tested to be over 95 percent carbon soot by EMSL, and we, we tested before and after, and uh, I initially started testing with PEM cassettes and uh, uh, trying to get down to a level of where I couldn't detect anything with uh, PEM cassettes cleared on my microscope and magnified about as far down as you could go, somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 1800X. Uh, and that's how I did it. It was analytical. It wasn't by sensing anything. It wasn't by what I smelled. It was by analytical methods. And then I I sent a sample of the EMSL uh, before and after, and the uh, after sample was run for approximately two hours with their combustion byproducts testing that was done with various electron microscopy methods. So I tried to keep what I was doing as analytical as as possible without uh, being too uh, subjective with
1: my uh, observation, well, Greg, we're running low on time, and what we're going to do is um, round it up. Let's do a round up, move then, then we got hit two him more up, questions. Hit him up, move up, on, move on, hit him up, raw, high. all right that's uh i i've got a list of i don't know the kind of i got a caller or a a listener that's been going uh doing a bunch of uh, uh chatting back and forth with each other i'm not even sure if there's any specific question i can pull out of here but i noticed one early on that i wanted to get back to greg and that was in the iic or cs520 they um the professional mold remediation standard. You'd mentioned that they do mention uh, positive pressurization somewhere, and then the listener had noted that they also mentioned using negative pressure and HEPA, you know, HEPA filtration. Um, maybe you could point us to the area within the document where they mention the positive pressurization.
2: Uh, and I know it's often. I would have- I would have to go back and look at it, but it, it does tell you that pressurization can work at, in different uh, positive and negative. I, I actually went back and reread it recently. Maybe sure we can,
1: may, Maybe after the show I can get that from you, and we can uh, put it in Cliff's blog. Uh, the other question they, they had, and I don't know if it was a question or just a comment. I, I assume you don't have a problem with... HEPA vacuuming and, and wet wiping on these projects, because that's also in, in the S-520, and I just wanted to get your comments on the general idea of HEPA vacuuming, wet wiping, and whether you feel that the sequence of HEPA vacuuming, wet wiping, and HEPA vacuuming, what's commonly referred to as the HEPA sand, which is, is appropriate for final cleaning. Um,
2: I, I think if you look at an area of physics, uh, particle adhesion, Forces like uh, electrostatic energy and van der Waals forces, it, you'll, you'll find real quick that HEPA uh, vacuuming is, is really not the final cleaning method that you want to use because um, it, it doesn't create enough friction to overcome those forces. And so detergents come in handy for that. And uh, I've actually found that wiping, wet wiping followed by dry wiping with dry sliffers. On smooth surfaces, uh, outperforms HEPA vacuuming uh, every day of the week. HEPA vacuums can only go so far, and unless you have a HEPA vacuum that has a beater brush in it that can somehow uh, provide some uh, energy in a form of friction to overcome those uh, those, those uh, laws of physics.
1: Okay, so I'm I'm just curious. You're not using HEPA vacuuming at all, or just it? You're being less reliant on it.
2: I'm less reliant on it. I I, I think it's a good pre-cleaning method. I think you should get surfaces down to as clean as possible with HEPA vacuuming. I'm just saying HEPA vacuums really don't go as far as they need to go. Okay. They really need to get some elbow grease behind it. Well,
1: and I think that's the reason behind the the HEPA, then the wet wiping, and then a final HEPA vacuuming. But, you know, obviously you're entitled to your own opinion and others are entitled to theirs. Uh, Uh, I
0: I think I agree with them. I, I think a lot of times this HEPA sandwiches prescribed by people that don't have to do it,
2: (laughs) you know, and,
0: and, you know, I think a lot of times the tools that are developed for the vacuums, you know, don't contour well, you know, to the surfaces. They, they weren't made for cleaning those surfaces. I don't know, but getting back to, I guess the other formula, Greg, you know, you'd mentioned the one that was the, 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 uh, the glycerin and borate based, and then you mentioned the second one, and I suspect that the second one was the one that's used more for fire restoration, the one that had the, um, I guess, the lavender and the, the sodium phenate in it. It, it. What what are the, you know, it would seem that when you're putting together a formula like this, that every ingredient has a specific purpose or, or it wouldn't be there. And And I guess, could you discuss... The purpose, you know, like what does the fragrance do? And then what does the sodium phenate do? And what does the borate do? And what does the glycerin do?
2: Well, <clears throat> let me just say overall, you have water, which is what you want mostly to reduce residues uh, so that they, they uh, at some point uh, either evaporate away or leave behind salt. you you want um, something that's a slow evaporator to help bind the water to the surfactant slash detergent longer. I mean, that that is why uh, uh, glycols are used in uh, cigar humidor boxes so that they maintain a higher relative humidity level than the uh, room around them. Uh, That that does happen, and so... uh, in the case of the uh, Aerosol or Pure, uh, the uh, sodium borate also is a fire suppressant, on top of being a uh, detergent, flash surfactant—you know, something for a surface tension. You know, because water by itself is not going to cling much. And uh, that's the basic principle behind them. And then the other product—I mean, obviously, you, you have a fragrance that's also an SVSC. You have a. You have phenol sodium phenate. You can't do phenol without sodium phenate. You have to balance it for toxicology reasons. Um, and, and then you, um, and then you have other surfactant detergents that are in there, you know, for the surfactant issue. And that's the, the basis for the uh, uh, ideas behind the formulation. Uh, you, you could uh, do water and glycerol by itself, but the problem is that might be flammable. That's why we need the sodium borate. Sodium borate makes it to where it's not flammable. Uh, And so sometimes you have to overcome that as well. And uh, that's what I, I use and push the most because that's what chemically sensitive people can deal with. And also when I can take odors physically out of the air with particles, sometimes you can detect hidden problems that you really had no idea they were there until you peeled the layers of the
1: onion away. But if I put something with a fragrance in the air, I'm not going to be able to do that. Greg, it's we're running a little behind, but always before we go, we always like to make sure you have the opportunity for the last word. Is there anything you'd like to add, anything we missed? And we really appreciate you coming on and being as forthright as you've been. So I'll uh, give you the last shot.
2: Uh, I would just like to say that the reliance on negative air machines and air scrubbers by themselves allow fans to move the particles to, to mix the air. Uh, people really need to take a step back and look at that, and if, and if they really think that works, uh, go test in more than one location and see what kind of test results you get, and then you'll find out that uh, clean rooms have been doing that, lower grade clean rooms, for a reason, uh, or they wouldn't spend millions of millions of dollars designing clean rooms this way they would have saved money and followed the uh, asbestos abatement mold remediation world Uh, but anyway i i say uh, however you're going to clean up your job make sure you're actually doing what you think you're doing so it doesn't come back and surprise you
1: i'm just curious how how would you suggest testing that
2: uh, you, you can do a variety of methods. Uh, clean rooms use, uh, anemometers, uh, laser particle counters, and, uh, smoke pencils to look for air turbulence and okay. look for, uh, where to sample. Uh, you, you, in a mold remediation environment, you, you could take, uh, you could take samples and send them to a lab for particle analysis beyond just mold sports just to get a sense of what's there. That would be a way to test that um PCR air samples uh, they they work to a degree but air sampling has huge problems because of curvilinear motion if you if you look at that physics area but generally just look at what clean rooms do i mean uh, again we we can learn a lot of lessons from other industries that spend a lot more money and they're a lot more successful than we are or they would not spend all that money
1: okay well greg we Again, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been an interesting and enlightening interview. We always appreciate it when people who have had, you know, uh, a little different point of view are willing to come on and share it with listeners. And uh, we certainly want to thank you for doing that today.
2: And uh, thank you for having me on. And uh, uh, in any follow-up that anybody has, they, they can reach me at... Uh, uh,
1: GW at aerosolver.com.
2: GW. Aerosolver. GW at, my initials for Greg Weatherman, GW at aerosolver. That's aero like aerospace, aerosolver.com.
1: A-E-R-O-S-O-L-V-E-R.
2: Yes, sir. And I could probably get into more... Technical uh, specificity, if somebody uh, can just uh, ask me what they're looking for.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because it's I.
2: It's a logical study about droplet sizes of uh, gravity versus uh, just floating in the air.
1: I'm glad you brought up the um, email because I forgot to ask you, and I do appreciate that, Greg. Once again, thanks for joining us, and uh, I want to thank our listeners, of course, for, for tuning in. We had a nice online group today, and I'm sure we'll have plenty of downloads. Uh, the Z-Man and I are going to uh, wish everybody a Merry uh, Christmas, Happy Holidays right. and all that. I'm We're going to take a couple weeks off here. We'll be back the first Friday after uh, the first of the new year. And uh, we'll be uh, interested in uh, seeing how people f- had uh, fared over the holidays. And uh, also, we've got a couple of very interesting guests lined up for the uh, early part of next year. So all of you that have uh, joined us today and over the last five years, we really appreciate your... Uh, you're you're joining us and listening to the shows, I want to thank the Z-Man here for joining me again this week. Of course, Valerie Bender for being at the controls. Our guest, Greg Weatherman. But most importantly, those of you on the line. Without you, we don't have a show. We'll see you come January 6th or somewhere there around that be a time. year older. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have a great day. Thanks for joining us on IAQ Radio. Oh, <laughs> hurry, now about your band,
2: in New York? Oh, I left right in the middle of it. As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast! <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man
1: in town. <laughs> present from a very dear friend of mine
0: look daddy teaches this every time a bell rings an angel gets his wings
2: that's right that's right <laughs> the that boy cry.
0: This has been another IAQ radio production.
2: Call recording.